Hey everybody, how you doing? It's good to be here. Um, you know, I, I love coming back uh, to Yorkshire. I grew up near here uh, in Nairsborough. Anyone from Nairsborough? No. Do, do you know what? It's a whole lot posher nowadays. Like, uh, I, I don't know what's happened since I left. But we used to spend our Saturdays in Leeds. We used to get the corn exchange and, uh, and buy LPs and cassettes. You remember those things? And then we'd sneak into the Duke of York near the university and we'd literally we'd put cardboard in the bottom of our Adidas trainers in order to look a little bit taller in the hope of getting served and then we'd get kicked out and lots of happy memories. And, you know, one of the things that happened in Yorkshire was just before I left... Um, I, I gave my life to follow Jesus, and it really changed things for me. And I think two of the things which are very, very significant were a, a local church leader who just wouldn't let go of our family in a, in a really kind way, and also my headmaster, and, uh, who had come to Christ, and a number of the staff had come to Christ, uh, and they just, they were salt and light. Um, to me, and a number of kids in my year gave their lives to Jesus that summer, and nearly all of them are still following him, which is great. So awesome to be back in Yorkshire, and uh, I'm going to show you some pictures of my family, just so you know who we are. We are the Podbury family, and uh, we, we are a family. We, we're a very male heavy, and. Uh, uh, we've just been at a big extended family event this weekend, and my kids have just basically fought, eaten, and you know played football throughout the whole thing. And there's very little social interaction, etc. But there are my kids there: Reuben, Barney, and Will. Um, Reuben is the next Bear Grylls. Barney wants to be the next Frank Lampard, and um, and, and William's a bit like Animal off the Muppets or something like that. He's sort of all passion and few intelligible words, but he's just a fab kid and uh, does a good job of being youngest. Now, I want to talk today about the idea of expectations, okay? Expectations and what happens when those expectations aren't met. And in fact, actually, life throws you some curveballs. You know, where's God in a scenario like that? And I think, you know, the whole thing with expectations, a lot of it sits on how we imagine the future. Now, I don't know if you remember, but years ago, there used to be a program on telly called Tomorrow's World, I don't think it exists anymore, but they would get every Thursday night, you would get a glimpse of the future. And it was so exciting, you know. And, and I imagine that by the time I was 43 in 2019, I'd arrive places wearing my hover boots in some sort of floating thing and maybe have a pill for breakfast, etc., etc. It hasn't quite worked out like that. You know, my favourite Tomorrow's World was an episode from the 1960s and it showed the car of the future, okay? And in the car of the future, um, you had stuff like where the glove box should be. You'd reach down and there'd be an LP player, you know, a record player. <laughs> and also, in the glove box of the car of the future was a cocktail bar. <laughs> so that as you were driving, you could help your passengers and yourself to a whiskey spritzer or something like that. You know, it's crazy, isn't it, how we imagine the future? And I want to show you a few inventions now that people have thought could add that just that little bit of missing quality to your life. So let me start with this, you know. So imagine the picture. You are a busy parent, and you've got that constant dilemma between childcare and cleaning. Do you know what? The scientists have resolved this with the all-new baby wipe. Let's take a look at this. <laughs> you can do childcare and cleaning. Or what about this? You know, for some of us, you know, particularly the men amongst us, I think you know, regularly we face the dilemma of whether to choose between bacon or a, or a fizzy drink. Okay, well, that dilemma, that situation there can be resolved right now with all new bacon soda. Take a look at this. And 
The thing I love about bacon seder is you can even get it with a hint of chocolate. <laughs> or there's this. Now, I think for some of the retired folks that you know, we know and love, you know, a lot of them recognize this as attention. You know, love golf, but need the toilets. You know, how are we meant to make that sort of decision work? But you know what? The inventors again have come to our rescue with the all-new potty putter. <laughs> you can play golf and go to the loo. But I think probably my favourite invention is this. You know, because for lots of us, we've, we've benefited, I'm sure you'd recognise, from the comfort of a good pair of underpants. But also, we recognise the practicality of a, new, of a good pair of gloves. You know, how could we fuse those two things? How could science help us with that? And science has come to our rescue again with the underpants. Pants for your hands. You know, I think this could transform the average office environment. Now, the reality is these things are probably not going to be a feature of many of our lives in the next 20, 30 years or whatever. But change will be. And change is normally a complex thing, emotionally, practically, relationally. And it's something which runs throughout stories, actually, if you look really carefully. This, is, uh, this film here is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It starred Emma Watson, and it looks at how just going through adolescence can throw curveballs people's way. And this is one of the quotes from the film here. And uh, it's from Stephen Chopsky's book. Things change and friends leave, but life doesn't stop for anybody. You know, like it or not, change is coming our way. Or, or, or how's this? This is from uh, the book The Fault in Our Stars. It's a book by a chap called John Green, and it asks the question, what does terminal cancer do to day-to-day -day life? How does that affect basic things like friendship and even falling in love? And in the book, one of the characters says this, you know, grief does not change you, Hazel. It reveals you. Perhaps you recognise that. Perhaps you've been through a loss or a challenge of some sort, and actually you've discovered what you or the people around you are really made of. You know, grief doesn't change you. But it reveals us, John Green says. And finally, this is from a much older piece of literature. This is from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And Shelley had this to say, nothing is so painful to the human mind as a great and a sudden change. Man, it can really unsettle us change. And so I want to look today at the story of one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament and how he experiences change and what Jesus might have to share with us through that. So we're going to have a little look at the story of, of Joseph from Genesis 37. And if, if you're not familiar with with the Bible or with church, you may still recognise this story. You might have heard of the musical Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Okay, well, that story is lifted directly from the pages of the Bible about one of the sort of forefathers in, in, the, in, the, in the Christian and Jewish faith. And Joseph's story starts as a teenager. And for most teenagers, that's a period which is characterised by dreaming. And all of those Saturday afternoons for me in the Corn Exchange were all about dreaming. Dreaming of being in a band and, you know, world domination and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you, know, you know, you plan, I'm going to marry so-and-so, we're going to go to this place and that place. You know, it's full of dreams. And for Joseph, it wasn't just dreams in terms of ideas. Some of them were actual at-night dreams, which had a spiritual component to them. And this is what it says of Joseph, that Joseph was a young man of 17, and that he was busy tending the flocks with his brothers. His brothers are sons of Bilhar and Zilpher, his father's wife. And Joseph grows up in a family where there are several women on the scene. It's a polygamous family. 
And his brothers brought their father a bad... Uh, sorry, he brought their father a bad report about the other brothers. And dad is Israel. That's his name. And it says this, that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Now, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him. They hated Joseph. And they could not speak a kind word to him. So just think about Joseph's world for a second. You know, he's one of 12 brothers. Man, imagine the ding-dongs that happened in that house. And just to complicate it, those 12 brothers share four moms between them. So there's all sorts of jockeying about, you know, who's really the oldest and the most important and all that sort of stuff. But, but Joseph, very clearly, should come quite low in the pecking order. He's second to youngest. But his dad loves him. You know, man, that is a bad parenting decision to favour one child more than the other. And it's doing some stuff in Joseph. It's creating a sense of entitlement. And we know some other stuff from the story about Joseph. The guy's strong. He's handsome. There's a winsome quality to him. People like him. But he's also overprotected. And on top of that, he begins to have dreams. Dreams that speak to him about that he might have a destiny. And what the Bible says is this, is that dad gives him something special. Dad gives him a cloak. And this cloak kind of epitomizes the thing. Now, I want you just to ask yourself for a second, do you have a, a special item of clothing, something that you really look forward to putting on or wearing once in a while? Have a think about that. So for my sons, it's really easy. It's Chelsea Strip. I'm sorry about that, but, you know, they, they feel a million dollars when they've got their Chelsea Strip on. And, you know, maybe... Maybe for some of the guys here, it's, it's a comfortable rugby top, or I, I don't know what it is, or the girls, it's oh, that, that dress that I wear when I go to special events, it's got a memory to it. Hey, here's something from my house. So th- this is a bit of history here, and um, this is uh, my morning suit that I, that I inherited. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a scruff bag, if I'm honest. Uh, but, you know, when I put the morning suit on, I kind of feel pretty cool, you know? <laughs> And this is from the 1930s, it's inherited. I can tell you, the Podbury's were a bit slimmer then. (laughs) And I've got the trousers and all that sort of stuff that goes with it, and I can just about get into it. Do you know what, this is handmade, it's heavy when you put it on. And I know it looks a bit quirky, but it's got a story, and I like wearing it. Just, Just think about that item you thought about for a second. What is it? You know, for my friend Fadu and his wife Chichi, they're from Nigeria, and so for them it's their tribal dress that they put on. And if there's a baptism at church, they come and they, they look wild, they look cool. But, it, you know, they, and they feel awesome. Okay, maybe it's your suit, or just pitch that for a second. Those clothes are speaking to you, and Joseph's cloak was speaking to him. And it was saying stuff to him like this. You know, really simple. It was saying, you know, hey guys, got a jacket on, you haven't got one. What does that say? It says that I've, I've got value. Yeah, sure, I'm number 11, but I've got value. And in fact, not only have I got value, and not only am I number 11, etc., but I, I'm the true heir. And as Joseph's walking through the village and through the farm and turning up at communal gatherings and stuff, the robe is speaking to him and it's speaking to other people. It's saying stuff like this, I'm important. Yeah? yeah? 
You ever been at a dinner do and you notice certain people are all wearing the same tie or something like that? They're part of some sort of in crowd and their clothes speak of something. It's a code. You know, Joseph's cloak was saying stuff to him like, you know, I've got a bright future. And the thing to remember is that in this sort of ancient society, people don't own a whole bunch of stuff. There's no Primark or whatever. So people might own a cloak. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, look, if you're one of those unusual people that has two cloaks... You need, to, you need to do something with that second cloak. It should not be sat at home. It should be giving protection, warmth, and dignity to somebody else. But Joseph's got a multicolored cloak. You know, this is a really high-status item. And it says stuff, because none of the other brothers have this. Like, actually, I'm the favorite son. So just imagine this. Every time Joseph's turning up to stuff, he's, he's turning up with this thing, and it's covered in these labels. Look, I'm the favorite son... So clearly, where's the land going? It's coming in my direction. I've got security. What about you guys? I don't see your special cloak. So, so this thing, sort of, it's, it's like a hook for us understanding what's going on in Joseph's world. Stuff is good for Joseph, and it's creating a problem in the family in terms of how it's being managed. And so I just want you to think about what happens next. And what happens next is this. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told this dream to his brothers, it really begins to kick off. And the Bible says this, they hated him all the more. And he says, look, listen to this dream. Imagine coming down at the breakfast table. Guys, I've had this dream. And uh, you know, we were binding the corn, because we've got this big farm, uh, out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf of corn stood up all by itself. It rose up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down. And, you know, I'm one of three brothers. My kids, they're three brothers as well. I know exactly what's going to happen next. Everyone's going to kick off. Who do you think you are? Do you think that we're going to bow down to you? Man, take a hike. Forget it. You're such a loser, etc., etc. This is what I say. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us, little brother? And they hated him. And all the more because of the dream. And then he had another dream. And, you know, what this is telling us a couple of things, you know, because the thing is this, that these dreams have some substance to them. So God is at work in this situation, in this family, and in this person, Joseph. But Joseph is not a wise or mature person yet. And so dream number come, two comes. And this time it not only involves the brothers, it involves mum and dad. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he tells his brothers and his dad... And his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous. Wow, this is a really interesting scenario. So can you see Joseph's creating a map of what the future's going to look like? And actually, he's not making it up. Some of this stuff is based on the reality of his relationship with his dad and things he's received and some spiritual, apparently spiritual stuff as well. And so his brothers begin to think, and how are they going to manage this guy who's actually upsetting the social order? You know, the youngest does not rule over the oldest in this sort of society. In Middle Eastern society today, in some places, this would still be an offensive moment. But this is really unsettling everybody. And so they go away, they come up with a plan, and the plan's really simple. They are going to grab him. And so they're out 
in the wilderness are looking after the cattle and the sheep and all this sort of stuff. And they see Joseph coming to join them. You know, they've been busy working. He's been slacking off again. And it says this, that they're out in a part of town called Dotham. They see Joseph in the distance. And before they... Before he reaches them, they come up with a plan. And the plan's really simple. They're going to kill him. Come now, they say. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the cisterns. And we can say a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, a couple of the brothers have a moment of conscience. And they say, look, we don't need to kill him. But let's, we'll throw him in the cistern. And why don't we get hold of somebody who's trafficking people between different nations and we'll just sell him to one of these traders. Dead simple. And he will be gone and forgotten and somewhere else. And the brothers say, yeah, this is it. This is what we're going to do. And so Joseph arrives to check in on his brothers, you know, for yet another difficult conversation where he's going to be a bit arrogant and all this sort of stuff and everyone's going to get upset again. And perhaps he even enjoys it. But this time, as he arrives, they pounce on him. They take the cloak off. The cloak's gone. The cloak is is ripped up. He's thrown in a cistern. They wait for a trader to come by. And as, as they wait, they decide this. We're going to rip this cloak up. We'll rip it up. We'll dip it in an animal's blood. And then we've got a story for Dad. Dad, I'm so sorry. But look, we, we're not sure what happened, but we think an animal has, has attacked Joseph, has, has devoured him. Look at his cloak. It's ripped up. It's in blood. Father, I'm so sorry. Joseph's gone. And so Joseph's story takes an unexpected turn at this moment. And if you're familiar with it, you know what happens next. He gets taken as part of a, of a group of people being trafficked as slaves to Egypt. And Egypt's the sort of big first world uh, neighbour. And there he's sold in, to work in a, in a family's uh, home. And actually, Joseph does pretty well. And the Bible actually says that Joseph does pretty well because God is with him. And although he's a slave... God starts to bless him in that new role. He's working for a guy called Potiphar. And uh, over time, Potiphar recognises this is a guy with some ability. This guy with some strengths. And it's actually someone I can trust. And so I'm going to promote him. And Joseph, the Bible says, becomes chief amongst Potiphar's staff. And now what's happening in Joseph's journey here, this is really interesting. He's going on a bit of a journey from, he starts off with loads of promise. You know, his life is full of promise. And then now he's in Egypt. He's away from all the things which gave him security and a sense of direction. Now his life is perplexing. It's uncertain. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. And in the midst of that, Potiphar's wife, who's a sort of stay-at-home wag, we think, uh, spots this young, foreign, slightly exotic, handsome, strong guy and makes a play for him. And it just tells us a little bit about how Joseph is changing. Let's just take a look at this. And uh, so this is what, how she addresses him. She says, come to bed. And, uh, and, and in verse 8, I think we've got this up on the screen here, um, we read this, that uh, Joseph refuses, chapter 39, verse 8. With me in charge, Joseph tells him, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to me. No one's greater than me. And then he goes on to say this. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Can you see, in the midst of Joseph's isolation and life taking a downturn, he's beginning to grow. And actually, rather than it being all about him, he's beginning to be a bit more conscious about God and his duties to God. 
And that God might have an opinion about Potiphar's house and Potiphar's marriage, etc. How could I do such a wicked thing? How could I step into that space and compromise God and myself and you guys? And if you know the story, you know that Potiphar's wife then turns against Joseph and actually makes the suggestion that he has, uh, has tried to attack her and Joseph ends up in prison. You know, that story as it unfolds gets more and more complicated. And we find Joseph in prison with other criminals, people who've done things which they're clearly guilty for. And he lies chained up in prison and forgotten about. But while he's in prison, some stuff starts to happen. Some of the other prisoners have dreams. And Joseph, uh, that they realise, can interpret dreams. Really significant, you know, this, 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 this guy from the other, you know, the foreign guy, if you have strange dreams, or if you need someone to pray with, go and talk to Joseph, because he's just one of those guys that can help you with that stuff. And one of the folks that ends up in prison is from the royal household. And he tells a story about a dream that the head of the nation, Pharaoh, has had. And quickly, Joseph gets dragged into that. And Pharaoh is concerned about these dreams and summons Joseph in the royal courts and says, you know, I hear that you interpret dreams and, you know, my magicians and, you know, our local priests, our Egyptian priests, they're not helping me with this. I want you to interpret it. And actually, if, if someone's got to interpret this soon, otherwise heads are going to roll. And again, what's happened in Joseph? The years have gone by. And, you know, perhaps when you're in a situation where you've been forgotten and your dreams have come to nothing, you've, you've got to make some decisions about what you do. And there's often some really standard responses. You know, for some people, they just sort of bail out. You know, they become apathetic, they become passive, they give up on the things that they thought God might have called them to be or things which they know that are inside them. They just give up, they bail out on the situation, they bury it perhaps. Other people blow up, they start to blame other people and to lash out and to get really dysfunctional. But is there another way? And for Joseph actually, he decides to make himself available to God and to make himself available to the people around him, not to blame shift or to blow up or to bury it but just to keep on walking and trust in the Lord and see what happens. And so he's brought before Pharaoh and he's told, look, can you help me or what? And Joseph answers Pharaoh's instruction like this. You know, he doesn't look for a position. He doesn't network or manipulate or anything like that. He hits it really straight. He says, look, your majesty, I cannot help you. I cannot interpret dreams, he says. But God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. You, something's changing, Joseph. Do you see that attention is less and less focused on himself and more and more looking outwards to the people around him, like Potiphar, his, his master and Potiphar's marriage. And now it's, it, it's looking outwards not towards opportunities, but towards being truthful, towards being a man of integrity. Look, I, I've got nothing in this equation, but, but God... God might be the one who can help us in this situation. Something is changing. There is growth in this dark, perplexing time. Wow. So Joseph interprets the dreams. And the dreams are actually to do with the welfare of the nation. You know, Pharaoh has a series of dreams about emaciated cows. And Joseph explains to him, as I've been praying about it, the Lord's warning you that a period of an economic downturn and famine's coming your way, and you need to prepare for it. 
And Pharaoh's like, no one else has given me such wisdom. Will you help me work this out? And so Joseph, who spent his adolescent years dreaming of running his father's estate and of a day where he is one of the youngest kids, is going to be one of the most important people in the community. Joseph, who's been entitled and not had to work hard, suddenly finds himself in this weird position where he's going to serve another nation and really as a slave, with no certainty as how the future is going to unroll. He's still hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his family. He's single, he's alone, he's in his middle ages and people have forgotten about him. And he doesn't know how it's going to end up. But he just makes a simple decision. I'll be godly with the things that lie immediately ahead of me. You know, as you think about your future, there's not many of us who with any certainty can predict how it's going to pan out. We can guess. And actually the hardest thing is to decide to be godly and to believe and to be faithful and to live well now. And so that is what Joseph decides to do. You know, Joseph has gone from, from, from cloak wearing, from being a person that if you saw in the street, you would know has a bit of status and dignity, to now he is a nobody. In fact, we might even just say this, he is a guy in a white T-shirt. You know, I wonder if sometimes you indulge in power play. My wife's a doctor and she describes how in the hospital... There are certain people that indulge in power play. They wear a certain suit or a certain tie so that as they arrive, they announce themselves. And all Joseph has to wear now is a slave's apron. He's an anonymous guy serving a, a, a guy who he has no security with. His whole life is vulnerable. And he's forgotten about by his family, but things are going to change. And as the scriptures move on, we read this, that... Joseph now, who's about 39, finds himself managing Egypt as they walk through a period of economic downturn and increasingly people from other nations are starting to arrive in the royal courts. So how's that going to work out? How's it going to be for Joseph when folks from his home country start to arrive in the royal courts? And, and this is what we read of. Why don't, you, why don't you turn a little bit further on in the scriptures to Genesis 42. And it says this, that Joseph's father learnt that there was grain in Egypt. So while the whole region now is coping with this famine, and Egypt is well supplied for because of Joseph's help, because of God speaking to Pharaoh through his dreams, etc. And so Jacob's family make the decision to go to this pagan nation next door, this foreign place, and to ask them for help. And Joseph's father, who's now elderly, sends some of the brothers to go and do a recce and ask for their help. And if you follow the story in any detail, you know that they turn up, not all of them, and, uh, and Joseph deals with them. It's just another day. There are people arriving in the court asking for help. He's dealt with some of the people he knows, and now there are some foreign visitors. And as these folks from another nation come in, and they're looking a bit older, you know, he's not seen these guys in 20-plus years, he suddenly realises, truth, these aren't just people from my nation, these are people from my family. This is Judah and Simeon and Issachar and so on. And flipping heck, they're all older and balder and greyer. And, oh, they haven't recognised that it's me. And of course, nobody's seen Joseph since he was a young thing in a multicoloured robe. And now he's speaking with an Egyptian accent and wearing Egyptian stuff. 
and he's got a different name, etc. And so as these Israelis arrive, they've got no clue they're talking to someone they've met before. They're just desperate for help. And so they ask him for help. These people who've plotted to murder Joseph, these people who've sold their brother and who've told a lie which they've sustained for over 20 years, now they're asking young Joseph for help. Can you imagine the mixture of feelings that are bubbling away in Joseph? Now is a time where if he wanted to, he could get justice. And you know what? He has been treated unjustly. There's no doubt. Now's a time where he could prove himself. Now he could say, do you remember the dream? And you scoffed at it, but who's on their knees now, guys? But instead, Joseph's heart moves. Now the journey goes through a couple of different meetings. And eventually the brothers come back with the youngest brother, with Benjamin. And it says this, Genesis 45, that a moment happens as they stand before this strange Egyptian civil servant asking for help, when suddenly the civil servant goes a bit nuts. He says to all the other staff, leave me. And when the doors are closed, and when it's just the Israelis and this chap from the Egyptian government there, he takes off his Egyptian garbs, his his uniform, and he says, do you recognize me? This is what it says in Genesis 45. Now, Joseph could no longer control himself. He cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So no one was there with Joseph when he made himself known as brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And he said to his brothers, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, guys, we've just whizzed through about a 25-year bit of history there. History of a family, history of a nation, history of nations. And there's this, this thing which we can see, this thread. It starts with somebody who, you know, they're from a dysfunctional family and they've got an idea about how the future's going to work out for them. And it sees them on centre stage. It sees them as being important and being served by the people, etc. And they're hearing God somehow in the midst of that. But they're handling it really badly. The family is breaking apart the seams. And there's a plot that's hatched. And Joseph is pushed out of the family. And he finds himself many, many miles away from home, forgotten, abandoned, somebody else's prisoner, then somebody else's slave, then somebody else's staff member. He's single for a long time. Life's moved on and he's forgotten about. And he's not sure what God's doing, but he's made the decision to stay faithful all the same. 20 years pass and suddenly the evil brothers return. And this time they're in need. They're the ones that are in a bit of a pit this time. And actually, rather than exacting revenge or rubbing it in, Joseph strips himself again and makes himself vulnerable and says to his brothers, really generously, really graciously, it's I, your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into slavery. Remember me? Do not be distressed. Do not be afraid. It was to save lives that God set this up. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, something that has happened inside Joseph's heart, 
And something is happening inside that family. And actually something's happening that's going to form the whole identity of God's people, Israel, actually. Something's happening which is beginning to transform Egypt as well. As a, as a different nation, a, a non-Jewish nation, is blessed by God's people just because God is good and kind and speaking in all sorts of different ways. And Joseph has chosen to roll with that, although it doesn't meet his expectations. And I just want us to move to how this story ends, because how it ends is really interesting. And it culminates in that whole family relocating to Egypt, because it's the only place where there's food, and Joseph can help them with land, etc. And so they move the family there, the wives, the kids, the grandchildren, etc. And they set up life as refugees in Egypt. And they also bring their now really elderly father to live there in Egypt. And the day comes when Joseph's father knows he's going to die. And so he summons the family, he calls the whole family together. These 12 grown men now from four different marriages who've not gotten on well. And essentially his will's going to be read. And he's going to do the traditional thing of he's going to speak blessing over his sons. And he's going to invite them one by one to come and stand at his bedside. And he's going to put his hands on them. He's going to speak blessing. And as he does that, he's conferring on them status. He's talking about inheritance etc etc it's a big moment and all 12 brothers are there for that and so this is what happens we're in genesis 49 joseph called for his sons and he said gather around so that i can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come assemble and listen sons of jacob listen to your father israel and they start to speak over his sons and do you know what? There's challenge and blessing in it. And so he says stuff like this, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, my first sign of strength. But you're turbulent like the waters. And he works his way through the sons. And then we get to this in Genesis 49, verse 22. And then he calls Joseph up. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. When bitterness Oh, sorry, with bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot him with hostility. And then it goes on. Because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you, the blessings of the skies above, the blessings of the deep springs below, the blessings of the breast and womb. And Joseph begins, Jacob begins to say, Joseph, God's been at work in your life. You were right. God was doing something. And what should happen now is that Joseph is spoken over and land is allotted and all that sort of stuff. But instead, what happens is this. Instead, Joseph throws himself on his father and he reaches for his sons, for his two Egyptian boys, for Ephraim and Manasseh, and he brings them into the circle and rather than seizing the blessing and inheritance, which he was so desperate for as a young guy, so things happen in Joseph's heart, where actually he doesn't need that. And he can use his opportunity to serve a different generation. That's a pretty profound change there. And actually it's something which is obviously pretty embedded in Joseph because it's the same thing that was going on when his brothers arrive in the courtroom and he strips himself and he's just a bloke there he's not an Egyptian leader you know, he's not a favoured son or anything like that he's just a bloke and he's a bloke who's able to say this look God sent me ahead of you in order to bless you so how can we get on with releasing that blessing you know that is the journey which God wants to take us on individually and corporately and it's the, it's the whole thing of 
incarnation and of emptying and of death and of resurrection that Jesus goes through himself. You know, it says this in the Philippians. It talks about how Jesus emptied himself. That he took on human likeness. That he became like a slave. Your attitude should be like that of Jesus, Paul says, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the way of the disciple is not the way of needing a cloak. It's not the way of externals. You see, all of those things which Joseph dressed himself in weren't secure things. At any moment they could be taken off him. And they were taken off him. And who was he in that moment? He was no one. He was a nameless alien in a foreign country, in a pit, in a prison, working in a kitchen, helping a guy that there was no sense of whether it was going to go anywhere. But actually in the middle of that... He learnt something that actually, although he didn't have a cloak, that he was loved. He was not forgotten. Do you see that in what his father says over him? You know, Joseph appears and it's like, well, you don't own any land. You've got a job that might finish any moment. You've only just got married, you know, very late on in the ancient world. But actually, you're like a vine climbing over a wall. It finds water. It just grows and grows and grows. We can see God's at work in you. Joseph realizes actually my security is not to do with my family of origin or whether dad is for me or against me. Actually, he can testify to the work of God in his life. You know, Joseph doesn't need to stand in the circle with his brothers and be given land because he recognizes that actually I belong and I'm called by God anyway. And out of that, he's able to bring other people into the circle as God's blessing is prayed over the next generation. He's the only one of the brothers that does that. He recognizes stuff like this, that he is a servant. But you know what? He's a loved servant. You know, the thing about Jesus, you know, we hold together these two things of Christ emptying himself of his heavenly sort of privilege. But actually throughout that, Jesus' identity is unchanged. So Jesus still hears the Father saying this, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now Jesus could take on a a slave's position and knew very clearly who his identity was. Joseph knew that he wasn't an orphan, he was a brother, not only to his earthly brothers, but actually he was a brother of Christ as well. And you see, this is the great challenge to the Western church, to realise that our security is not really measured by whether we have a seat at the table of influence. It's not even measured by stuff like whether we grow. And you know, I believe it's the Lord's will for us to grow, but that's not actually an indicator of whether or not we belong to, to God. Actually, Christ's work is the indicator of that. And so there's this message that comes out of, of Joseph's testament. That actually, in times of being emptied, God has not left the building. In fact, God is at some very deep work in us. And perhaps work that we're not even going to be able to explain or verbalize very clearly for many years to come. And yet the people around us start to live in the good of it. We start to be changed ourselves in terms of being people who are outward looking. But the journey towards that for Joseph, it was emptying. We start to realize as well that blessing is not because of who we are. It's because of who God is. And because we belong to him. 
And so even if we are people who don't have cloaks, as the world would recognise them, even if we are people who are just blokes in a white T-shirt, anonymous people, without labels that we can visualise, there are some things which are deeply written onto us. And also there are things that are written onto Jesus about us. You know, we sing, my name is written on his hands, and it is. You know, as Jesus walks among us, he puts a new cloak on us. You know, we see that in the parable of the lost son, don't we? Now, kill their fattened calf, prepare a feast, get a ring, get a robe, for my son is back. And as Jesus walks among us, as he walks among the people of, of Beeston at the festival you guys were just involved in, or Holbeck, wherever that was, and, you know, all the other different parts of Leeds, Headingley and wherever else, Jesus walks amongst people of Leeds. And actually, his righteousness is being written over them. And so he's, he's written over you, my friend. You may not have a cloak, but you are labelled as called. And, you know, you're labelled as loved because you're a co-heir with Christ and you're hidden in Christ. And you're, lab- you're a brother of Christ and a sister of Christ. You know, you are servants, but man, you are a loved servant. There's favour of God on us. And, and this is because of Jesus, you know. I love it in the baptism of Christ that Jesus hasn't done anything. And God the Father's testimony is this. This is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. Actually, you know, we're secure. This is the stuff that Jesus is cloaking us in. You know, this can be your testimony starting today if you don't know Jesus Christ. You know, if you have not experienced being made naked in some sort of way by life, it's almost certainly coming your way, but it might just be that that could be a really fruitful moment for you to discover that God is at work. And I don't know that God engineered Joseph's demise. You know, Joseph never says that, but God was clearly at work in it. And out of it, not only was Joseph changed, not only did God fulfill that dream, but he fulfilled it in a way that was far more healthy and generative and Christ-like than Joseph or his brothers could ever imagine. This is the work of God in us. Why don't we get the band up? And I think we should pray and come before God as we worship. Why don't we stand for a minute? And um, we've told quite a long, big story today. And, um, you know, if it would help you, why don't you close your eyes? It might just help you concentrate. And perhaps you could even, if you're comfortable to do so, just put out your hands as a way of saying to the Lord, um, okay, I'm, I'm open to this and to you, and I'm trying to open up the inner part of who I am, my story to you, God. And Lord, as we do that, we bring before you our journey so far. And Lord, I praise you, God, that we see in the life of Jesus promise and perplexity and persecution being held together. Both are things within which God works. And God, I thank you that as we look at Joseph's story, it's just so beautiful. We see a young man who has heard God. He's a teenager and he's hearing God in a way that in the years to come he's going to oh gosh, God was speaking to me about my life, about my family, about the nations. I didn't realise that. He'd heard the voice of God. And Father, in the pit, he was not alone. You were at work. You were engineering stuff for the good of Joseph and his family and the nations. 
And Father, as we come before you, we come before you and with openness, Lord God, to say that, Lord, we will continue to follow where it looks a bit uncertain, Lord, and we will trust you. And God, with Joseph, we say this, that what others have intended to bring harm through, God intends for good, to accomplish the saving of many lives. And so, Father, this is our prayer as your people. Lord God, that you would turn our circumstances to good as you define good, Lord, for blessing and change in us and in the communities around us and beyond our direct reach and influence. Lord, we are your people, your possession, and we are labelled as belonging to Jesus Christ, as being co-heirs with him, as having security in Jesus, which is not dependent on our circumstances or our performance or our reputation or our family or our birthplace, but is dependent upon the work that Jesus has already finished and accomplished. And we say yes and thank you to that and count us in. Amen.